I kind of got a lot of things that I want to do, and I'm going to forget part of them, so just be aware. Um, oh, yeah, kids. Thank you, Jody. I appreciate it. If you've got them, we'd love to take them. How about that? Um, if you've got youngsters, elementary age and below, Miss Emily and Miss Jody are back there, and they would love to take you down and do all kinds of cool stuff with you. So, awesome. Okay, so I've got a lot of things I want to do, and I'm, gonna, um, I'm gonna probably going to forget some of them, but some of, part of it is the nature of, of where we are as a church, and so... We're just going to go for it and sort of see what happens. So I told you a couple weeks ago, this is a really pivotal time in the life of our church. Um, we moved into this space uh, right about a, a year ago, um, a little bit over a year ago. And uh, as a church, really on October, November 21st, we're coming up on our sort of second year. So really a pivotal time in the life of our church in terms of where we go from here and what, what that looks like. And I've really been spending a lot of time kind of praying through and asking God for discernment to be able to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit on where he's leading us as a church in the next, really in the next 12 months, but kind of projecting out to the next 24 and 36 months of where we're going as a church. And so two weeks ago, I told you that we were going to take a little break. We had been studying the book of Ruth. We had spent six weeks kind of walking through verse by verse the book of Ruth. We put that on, a, on pause, and we're taking a little bit of a different sort of five-week mini-series um, that we're going to be focusing on really who we are as a church and the church that God is calling us to become, and, and really using this idea that this is a very pivotal time for us. And so I was told you I was going to take a little bit of a different approach uh, to teaching through this series before we pick up the book of Ruth that's really going to focus on a couple of things. It's going to focus on sort of a vision point for 2014. So I'll share each week a uh, sort of one of the things, one of the four things I think God is calling us to focus on. 2014, I'll share a kind of an action point, which is really that question, what does my church desire for me, right? So what do we as a church need from you, the church, right? Action point. And then a teaching point where we take a step back and we open up the word and we say, God, what are you teaching us towards that? So each week we're going to be doing a piece of that. And uh, we're doing it with this couple of understandings in mind. The first one is this. In 2014, my singular purpose is that we would be really to develop a culture here in our church, a culture of biblically-based generous living that involves our hearts and our resources. So not that we're not doing that, but I want it to be what we're known for. Like, I want people, to, when they think about this church, to go, man, I'll tell you what, those people live in the re- most ridiculous, generous way with their time and with their lives and with their resources. Not because we want you to give the church your money, but because we're living in such a way that says, God, everything that I have is yours. Right? And two weeks ago, I really opened up this series by saying this. The single greatest principle that will set you free in life is an understanding of this, that my life and my stuff belongs to the Lord. Okay? We explored that in kind of an in-depth look. My life and my stuff belongs to the Lord as a follower of Christ. Well, that sort of projects into this bigger picture, which is we want to be a culture of people that live in such a sort of biblically-based, generous living that it permeates through our lives and our resources. And I give my life away, my time away. And not just here, but to my neighbors, to my coworkers. Like, I am generous with who my, you know, my heart is, who God has made me to be. So that's sort of this, this bigger principle. And, and I really told you that there are three guiding things that are going to be working us through this series, right? That, that we're calling now is the time because it's a pivotal time for our church. Like we've got to make some incredibly important decisions this year about what we do with the space, for example, about where God is, is kind of directing us to, how we better reach our community. You'll be hearing some of these things. Now is the time for us as the church, but also now is the time for you and your family. And we're going to be looking a little bit at giving and about resources and about developing this culture of generosity. And I really put three things out there for our church that sort of, I hope this process, this Now is the Time series really really empowers you to do or pushes you to do. And the first one is the idea of, look, now is the time to um, grab hold of your financial life. 
So I think most of us think that our financial future is down the road. Like, you know, when I turn 30 or 40 or 50 or whatever, or when, when I do this and I secure my this or I get this job or I have some money in savings, and then I'll really be able to, to plan better and know better or get out of debt or whatever it is. But the reality is, is that now is the time. There will always be something down the road. If we project sort of seizing our financial life down the road, it's not going to happen. Now is the time to grab hold of your financial life. The second one is, is now is the time to biblically redefine your priorities. So what is your life built on? What is important to you? Where do your resources go? And I'm not just talking about your financial resources, but where do your time resources go? Who gets the best of what you have, right? So what if I took a moment in my life or our family's life and I said, we're going to redefine. Starting right now, we're going to redefine biblically what's important. So who gets the best of my time, my children, my wife, my whatever, or does my work, or does it, how do I, and how do we as a family redefine our priorities? And the third thing is, is that now is the time really for us, right, to change the way that we think and live. Like change begins now. Seizing our life begins now. It's not down the road. So how do I think and how I live? Now is the time where it begins. Now is the time where I win my wife back. Now is the time where I show my kids that they are who I value the most. Now is the time where I actually get out and I invite my neighbors into my world and into my life or into my church. Like, now is the time where I make those changes. So often in our life, we project those down the road and say, right when I get through this project or when I get through this season, then, then it'll happen. The reality is, for most of us, we're just kicking a can down the road. The truth is, I believe that God calls us to seize those moments that he's calling us to now. So those are those overriding sort of principles. Now, we are going to be talking in this sort of context about money and about resources. And I know those of you here the first time are going, ah, I can't believe it. Coming to this church for the very first time and the pastor talks about money. Everywhere I go, church talks about money. There's my money, 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 money. Here's the deal. We don't want your money. Like, I'm being dead serious. Hear me say this. We don't want your money. We, do, we don't care. God will provide for this community. So when you hear me talk about the context of giving, I'm not talking about talking about the context, or I'm not talking about giving the context of giving to us. I'm talking about the context of giving to the Lord, whether that is your heart and your resources or your financial dollars, wherever God is calling you to place them. And I'm going to show you some ways today why I believe that's free. But we're not talking about that. We're not trying to get a big offering. God will provide for us with or without you. That is what I deep believe. So we want to free, or I want to help you be free to live a life of generous living. So we're not talking about money. We're not going to pass the plate three times. I worked at a church in college. We passed the plate four, three, three or four times until we hit whatever that number was. The pastor would say, we'd sing another song just as I am. Plate would go around one more time, you know, just until we get it. And so we're, we're not going to do that. So you're safe, okay? So it's not going to happen. But I don't want you to think that you walked in and this is all we ever engage in. Giving is part of our worship experience. It's part of how we say, God, my life and my stuff is yours, and you give me the privilege of stewarding it and giving it away. Giving is a privilege. And so we want you to be able to be free with your life and say, these are yours. So wherever God tells me to put it, whether it's my heartbeats or whether it's my dollars, they belong to God. So uh, if you're here for the first time, what I want you to hear is, hey, listen, this is not every day where we stand up and we talk about money and we're trying to get yours so that we can have a bigger this or put a bowling alley downstairs. Like, we're just not that kind of church. And sadly, well, I'll get into this in a second. So... Anyway, hear that. Okay, so here's the deal. Our vision points. I'm going to give you, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of go over these last week, or last ones real quick, and then give you the new one. So the first thing I told you two weeks ago is that our first vision point for 2014 is to centralize and decentralize community. And I explained that by saying one of our big goals is to rethink how we do worship on Sunday morning. We've been here a year. As you can tell, our worship space is full. We haven't gone back to two services yet, mainly because we're too small to really have two services. I mean, we want to be a community that is in kind of meshed our lives all together. When we go to services, although our numbers may be a little bit bigger on paper, we disconnect. And so we don't 
love that. We'd love to be in a place where we could worship all together. We're too small of a community to have to have multiple services on a Sunday morning. But, and our space that we have here, well, we knew it was real expensive, and we sort of leveraged ourselves to be in here uh, rent-wise so that we could be visible and so that we could really reach our neighborhood. We put a team of people together that are sort of evaluating because our lease comes due this summer, and we have to decide if we're going to stay or, or kind of go. Or, we put a team together that's going to evaluate all those, those things, uh, a worship kind of space team. So we're trying to make huge decisions on this space. And so when I say centralized community, one of the things we're focusing on is how do we do this really well and invite the world? Like how do we invite the world well? And so what we do on Sunday morning, we're going to be really evaluating and looking into, and it's going to affect all of us, whether we, we move down the road or up the road, and I'll tell you a little bit more about those kind of things. But we have a huge heartbeat for this community. We're not going far. But we also want to be able to grow in a way that is healthy and says we want to create room for our folks in the community. We, right now, don't have any room in here. We're full. So unless we go to the second service, we've got to really kind of adjust our, our sort of thinking. So talked a lot about that last week. It's online. You can listen to it. And then I talked about decentralizing community, which is we, we don't want to exist here like this. We want to actually be a community of communities. We launched a life group plan in the fall. We're going to continue to make that and remake that and break it and start over. We want you to live in community where you are. So if you just show up at church on Sunday morning, you're missing it. This is not the call of the church. 55 minutes, or in our case, an hour and a half in Trev's teaching of, like, worship is not really what we're called to as the church. It's an expression, a tiny piece. What we're called to be as the church is the ecclesia. It's the Greek word for gathering or assembly. It's where the people meet in our homes, in our lives. It's wherever you meet with other believers. You are the gathered assembly. So we want to cast this thing out so that we're living as the community outside of here on Sunday mornings. Okay, so second, that was the first one, it was a couple weeks ago, and then I was gone last week uh, getting drummed by OSU watching Texas Tech lose, that was awesome, that was a really great experience. So um, we went to Lubbock and, and did that and had a big family deal, and I saw the Tech game, and Stephen Pittman came and preached, and he, and, and he talked about this sort of idea of not being a fool and learning to trust God with our lives. So we sort of skipped the vision point, I didn't put that on him, but here's the second one. The second one is that in 2014, we're going to be focusing on empower and releasing leaders. So right now, we're in the process of uh, equipping and soon to be appointing elders uh, that going to sort of govern our church. You know, we are um, just in our second year, and we have taken an intentional look at what the Bible says about church government and all those kind of things. And right now, we operate with a leadership team. It's pretty amazing. But we know that God is calling us to a model that has a plurality of elders that are people that are sort of appointed by God, if you will, and led to lead the church. And I'm going to be talking, actually preaching through that uh, in the next, uh, well, probably about five weeks as we get up to Christmas time and right after that. But, but just so you know, we're in that process right now. And so in the new year, 2014, you're going to see that. We're going to see a transition of leadership going to people that God is raising up. Because this church does not belong to me or just a handful of people. It's yours. It's, it's part, the expression is this church is, is led by who God raises up and people. And so we're going to be a, 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 um, equipping, and we are equipping, those uh, folks right now. So we'll be talking a little bit more about that. The second piece of leadership that we're going to be doing is, is empowering and releasing team leaders. So right now, as you know, this church really is a function of, um, we don't have a staff. It's a function of the people that volunteer their time here. So we, we have a tiny little staff. It's like me, and then we Stephanie's part-time, and, and, and Dawn's kind of part-time, and I, I put way more on them than they actually deserve. Uh, but they're amazing. And so if you see it, it's because usually... You know, one of us is either engaged in it, but we need to elevate that and say, look, we need team leaders, people that will lead movements of people to do things of the ministry of this church. The ministry of this church cannot be in my hands. Everything does not fall on me. It falls on you to love each other well and to live well within the context of community. 
We're going to be putting teams together of people that really function well with our hospitality, with some of our care and connection, with our life groups, with how we do mission. So we're going to be opening those windows and empowering and releasing leaders to do the act of ministry of the church. Now, organically, it's sort of already happening, right? We're doing those things, but we're going to do it in a way that we really put some intentionality in saying, where can you bury your life in this church, right? God is using you. So as you're feeling led, um, to do things. I get people all the time say, hey, Trevor, I've got a huge heartbeat for this, and uh, this is something I think we should do. And I look at them and I say, great, do it. And they're like, well, you know, I mean, I really kind of wanted you to do the deal. And I'm like, no, look, here's the thing. If, it's, if you feel called to it, we're going to empower you and release you to do it. Part of that is the expression of this sort of organic movement that we have as a church. So you're going to be seeing a focus on how we raise up and empower leaders and then ask you to be a part of that process. That's going to be really unfolding in the next few months as well. So then each week I ask you to take an action point. What, what do you need from me? And, and two weeks ago I said, look, this church needs you to pray. And I don't say that tongue-in-cheek. Tongue in I don't say it lightly. Like very few of us truly engage in prayer for our church and, its, and our church leaders. We always pray for the church when it's falling apart. But very seldom do we really deeply commit to praying for uh, the church and its leaders. Look, we've got huge decisions we're trying to make. Uh, decisions that, that kind of move us in, in directions. Discernment from the Lord on where he is leading us. We need you to pray. Um, for these fallible, broken people that are trying to listen to the Lord. And so we need you to pray. That was two weeks ago. This week, here's my, my action point for us as a church. Is, and I'll have all these available next week. You'll see a big sheet with all of them. Um, but this week it is, we need you to commit. This is your church. We want you to invest your life. Listen, by accident, sometime about 15 years ago, 10 to 15 years ago, our Christian subculture developed a sort of a, a movement of attenders. For those of you that are a little bit older, you remember your church experience maybe in the 40s, 50s, 60s, even into the 70s. You remember that the church, you were committed. I mean, you were in a monogamous relationship with the church. And when you moved from Oklahoma City to Tulsa, if you were a Baptist, you found the Baptist church. It didn't even really matter. You found the Presbyterian church. You, found, you didn't care who went there. You were in that relationship, and you were committed, and you were involved. And that was part of your identity, right? Well, you know, oh, yeah, we're, we go to First Baptist, First Baptist, First Presbyterian, whatever. It's part of our identity. Somewhere in the past 10 to 15 years, we've created a culture of attenders because I can show up for church and, and I look to be entertained so I show up and for that hour that I'm there I look for you to entertain me whether it's with your stories or how you see on video or what the songs sound like and we put together these incredible production movements with smoke machines and worship leaders wearing leather pants and all those kind of things and we try to outperform each other right we just do and I'm not indicting any other church I'm just saying that's the truth I've been a part of it it's the culture we've created. And if that doesn't entice all my senses long enough, then I go find some place that does. Right? And we try and live and outperform each other. The reality is, is that our church will never outperform anyone. All right? We will never outcool anyone. Although Don and I are trying to outbeard a few folks, we're not going to ever outperform anyone. Right? It's just not going to happen. You know, the reality is that what we want to be is, is a group of people that are committed to Christ first and then committed to see this church become the mission that it's called to be in our community. Like, we want mature, intentional people that say, we want, about see, we want to be about seeing God made famous. Like, this isn't about showing up and, and you, me liking something or not liking something. It's like God using me here. And last week or two weeks ago, I talked about how you can be a part of worship and how I believe that God wants to use you. So... We want you to move, here it is, in 2014, to move from being an attender um, to actually being a part of this church. So if you've just been showing up, I really want you to begin to pray. Man, maybe it's time that I say, God, you get, you get all of me, and I'm going to put my life into this church. The reality is we can't do it if the people in this church don't decide that they want to own it and run it and be a part of it. The ministry that happens here takes place because of you. Our pastoral staff, they're crummy. They're crummy, right? Web design team, terrible. 
It's all the same guy, right? So <laughs> not good, not good. So we need people. Okay, so that, that's sort of my, my sort of spiel, the action points and vision points. You'll have it all available next week. You'll see it. We'll continue to talk about it. So we're talking about, as we move into our teaching point, we're really talking about giving in the context of, of dollars and resources. And this is really important because I think one of the things the church tiptoes around a lot is, is the idea of money. Because we don't want to be seen as that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get your dollars. And so what happens then when the church doesn't talk about it, we allow secular influences to influence and talk about how we think about money. And that begins to kind of drive the conversation. And so at some point in time, the church has got to stop and it's got to say, what does the Bible actually say about my giving life, my financial life, and my resource life? What does the Bible really say about that? And I told you two weeks ago that we begin with this principle, my life and everything I have belongs to the Lord. Well, this week I'm going to do something a little bit different, okay? Um, this week I'm going to kind of stray from the way that I normally teach. And normally I'm kind of really exegetical in the way I teach, which means I just take one big passage of text and we move through it word by word by word by word. And I'm going to hop around a little bit because I'm, I've had a lot of this question come in the past, oh, I don't know, maybe five or six weeks and maybe even longer than that. Trev, all that is great, right? When you talk about my stuff belonging to the Lord and my life belonging to the Lord and giving and all those kind of things. But how do I really do that? Like what is the practical way to make these things a reality. You know, where does the Bible actually tell me um, to do this? How do I start if my life, my financial world is kind of a bit chaotic? Like, how do my wife and I, or how do I begin? So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to give you really a five kind of point or five principle walkthrough that I believe will revolutionize the way that you think about your financial and really your resource life. And I'm talking about your time and all those kind of things as well. If you really listen to these things, I promise they will revolutionize. So I'm going to move around a little bit in scripture this morning and we're going to kind of jump from here and there. But I want you to hang on to these five things because uh, I think they're really kind of a a biblically laid out plan possibly for for how we can seize those things. So before we do that, we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. And first place, we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 25. So if you've got a Bible and want to follow along, you can. If not, you can just kind of peruse with me. So um, let's pray. Lord, I know that was a lot of me talking. And, uh, but Lord, it's so important as a church. So often we don't stop and just say, hey, look, this, is, this thing belongs to you, God. And you're empowering us to be a part of stewarding and shepherding it. And so, God, we pray that what we become as a church is a, a launching place for the gospel to reach into our community. Lord, I thank you for the lives that are here for the very first time. I pray that what they see through is not a church that's talking about money so that we can do better and bigger things for ourselves, but we talk about money so that we can be used by you to see people come to know Christ. And that's it, Lord. And, and so I, I pray that there will be no um, feelings that, hey, this church is trying to get my dollars. Like, God, we don't, we don't need that. We believe that you will provide everything we need at every point in time. But God, as we play, lay out this plan, I, I really believe there's a biblical picture here that would help redefine our priorities and help redefine how we think. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask God for the next few moments um, to maybe open your heart a little bit um, to see a bigger picture. Just just whisper that. God, open my heart a little bit to see a, a, a bigger picture. Lord, we love you. And we thank you for Jesus, and um, we pray that you would would move in us. Take a moment and just pray for somebody around you, even if you don't know them, even if you think that's a little odd. Just pray that God would do something in their life. Be in the habit of praying for other people.
we love you. We thank you for the way that you continue to move in our lives. We pray that you would move in our hearts this morning, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at five things, and be, for the sake of sort of time and some other things, I'm going to kind of go over them briefly, because two of them I'm going to really expound on next week and the week after. So the next two weeks, I'm going to kind of chase two of these five principles um, pretty strongly and, and kind of a much more in-depth look. So I'm going to go over these things, because I want you to just sort of get the, the brief understanding of where we go, because I do believe these things will revolutionize the way you think about your giving, your life, your financial life, and really the way that you think about your resources and how you live in, uh, in general. So five principles, all right? And, and I'm sure that you could open up any financial book and be like, well, there's better ones. But, you know, look, these are, these are mine. You get, this is what you get. Okay, so here's the deal. The first thing is this. I think the first principle is this. We've got to earn ethically. Now, most of us, this never crosses our mind. This idea of earning money ethically never crosses our mind. Now, here's the thing. The Bible never explicitly states that everybody has to have a job. If you think the Bible says that every person has to work, it just doesn't say it. The truth is the Bible actually talks about how we work when we do. There's a lot of people that don't have work, that aren't working for because of health reasons or just lack of opportunity or because they have resources and don't need to work or they've retired and just don't want to work. But assuming you work for a living or assuming one day you want to work for a living, how you make money matters to God. Believe it or not, how you earn money actually matters to the Lord. Now, most of us, we don't even let this thought cross our mind because you know, ethical earning or being honest is not something that really we pay much attention to, but the Bible pays a lot of attention to it. The Bible talks about how we acquire things. That matters. How we go about getting them matters. Being honest and how we get them matters. Two things I want you to see about this idea of earning ethically. And the first one comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 13. And that's this. Look, be honest. Be honest. Listen to what Moses tells the people when he's giving them some instructions. Verse 13. Do not have two differing weights in your bag, one heavy and one light. Do not have two differing measures in your house, one large and one small. You must have accurate and honest weights and measures so that you may live long in the land the Lord is giving you. For the Lord, your God, detests anyone who does these things, anyone who deals dishonestly. Now, there's a whole bunch of passages like this, but I really like this one. And I chose it because I think it's a little bit obscure, but I think it plays out really well to thinking about how I earn my money honestly. Now, here's what was happening in the day. There was no government regulation over weights and measures. There was no person that held an office and would come in and make sure that, that however you were giving goods was done correctly. Well, what happened is often what we saw when we went to Africa a few years ago, which is if you had something, you went to the street and you would sell it, all right? So, and the way that would work is, is that if you had a cow and you butchered that cow and you gave it to everybody in your family and you had extra and you were going to go then and sell it or trade it on the street. So what you would do is you would take that cow to the tree hanging over the road and you would hang that cow up and you would sit on a blanket. And people would come walking by and they would say, hey, look, I want some of that meat. And so what they would do is they would say, I want this piece here. And that guy would take it down or that girl and she would chop it up and she would set it on a, on a scale. And then she would say, this is what this is worth. And you would either trade her or him or you would give them money. All right, And that's the way, I mean, in Africa, this is still how things are going down. I need a chicken, and this guy is selling chickens, but I don't have any money, so I'm going to give you five ears of corn and two sacks of rocks, and here, you give me that, and I get your chicken, right? And they would weigh it all out, and they have this whole system in place and all those kind of things. Well, this is what was happening in those, you know, some three plus thousand, four plus thousand years ago. 
people would have things and they would sell them. They would often do it in the temple courts or in other places. And they would go before them and they would sell them. And in Deuteronomy, Moses is talking to a people that had just been freed from Egypt. The whole country of Israel had yet to even be established. And he's saying, listen, don't cheat people. Don't have two things in your bag. Don't have one heavyweight and one lightweight. And when the, the person that comes up and says, look here, I've got these ears of corn. I would like to buy them from you. And you slip the other weight out and you're like, oh, hey, look, these are expensive. And so, or if you're measuring out rope, don't have two measures. Don't have the one that you, you know, people that are smart are going to figure out and the one that maybe they don't, you know, they get a little bit more. He's basically like, look, don't cheat people. Don't cheat people. God detests it. Now, in our context, think about that. There's a lot of ways we can cut corners when we earn money. There's a lot of ways that we can shave boundaries to be ethical or unethical. There's a lot of ways that we can sort of cook the books, flip this thing, flip that number, round up, round down, whatever it is. God wants you to earn your money ethically. Is there an unethical way to earn more money? Absolutely. But God wants you to live an honest way. Think about the company you're involved in. What if you're involved in a moment where, or in a, in a system that is very unethical in the way that it goes about taking money from people? Is that something that God loves? I believe the Bible teaches that God detests it. It matters to God how you come about your money. So the first thing I want you to understand is that earn ethically. And to do that, you've got to be honest. You've got to be honest. Look, most of us don't think about it. Most of us pretend it doesn't go on. But listen, be honest. Be convicted by it. The second piece of that earn ethically is this. Work as if you're called. You know, the great reformer Martin Luther used to say this. He used to say, when you are called by God, when you are called by Christ, the job that you have or your vocation that you have becomes part of your calling as well. And what he meant by that was this. Look, when you give your life to Jesus, everything that you do is an honor, opportunity to bring him honor and glory. So work as though you're called. Now, it may not be the perfect job, and maybe God will do something else down the road, or he'll open up another opportunity, but the moment where you stand is a moment where you can bring glory and honor to the Lord. Whether you're working at Dollar General or, or Chipotle or, or Price Waterhouse or whatever it is, you have a moment in that place to honor and serve the Lord. Colossians 3.23, Paul says this to the church out there. He says, look, he says, whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as though you're working for the Lord and not for men. This is what he's telling the church in that city. He's saying, look, it doesn't matter what you do. What you do doesn't necessarily matter to the Lord. What matters to God is how you do it and the manner in which you engage in it. Work with all of your heart as if you're working for the Lord. So many of us detest the jobs we're in, right? We just don't like it. We don't like the environment. We don't like the people. We don't like the things. Now, a lot of us love our jobs, right? But a lot of us don't. For a lot of us, it is a means to an end. Part of our calling is to actually look at those moments and say, I can right here in this place work and live in such a way that brings honor to the Lord. Right? I can work as though I'm called. Now, that transfers not just out in how we earn money, but it transfers to how we live with our neighbors and with all these kind of things. But work as though you're called. Part of earning ethically is to do it with an attitude that says, God, you get my best. I might be grudging and angry and frustrated that I have to work, and the guy that I grew up with, he doesn't have to work, and he has all those things, and he married wealthy, or she married this and that, and I'm frustrated and angry that I'm stuck in this dead-end job, right? And everybody else around me seems to be making it work. Paul basically says, that's not the way you look at your life. It's not even an ethical way of thinking about living and working. Instead, say, God, today is an opportunity for me to get up and glorify you. So if you have me here, I'm going to do it. If you move me on, I'm going to move on. First principle, earn ethically. Be honest and work as though 
you were called. So how you make money actually matters to God. Second principle, resist greed, all right? Now listen, greed is a stealthy little animal. Most of us don't think we have it. Most of us think that greed is something that other guy have. That only the rich people that want to be really, really rich have it, right? That CEO of this company or that person, that politician or this thing over here, this bank or whatever, they're greedy. But me, I'm just trying to get by. I would actually challenge that line of thinking because greed isn't so much about really getting things, but it's about my love for things, my love for stuff and my love for money, right? Now, most of us don't think we have that, but I, I beg to differ. Take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7. Listen to what Paul has to say to his, his disciple, this person that had been, he's been teaching, Timothy, who's been sort of pouring into his life. He says this, 1 Timothy 6 and 7. He says, he's telling, talking to Timothy, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with, will we be content with that. People who want to get rich fall in temptation and trap of many foolish and harmful desires that plunge mon- men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith, pierced themselves with all kinds of greed. Greed is a slow poison. It is a stealthy killer. And it starts off slow and innocent enough. It starts off as just sort of that mentality that's a little bit of, I just just want this other little thing. I just want a little better car. Like, mine's not reliable. I just want a little better house. I just want to keep up with this person. I just want this. And then it slowly turns into what Stephen really preached through last week, which is once I acquire these things, I don't want to let go of them, right? And he talked about the the guy that had all this sort of abundance, and, and he had so much that he knocked down his storehouses and built bigger storehouses. Really, that's the picture of greed. It's that part of our culture, even in our Western culture, that says, I have to have space for my stuff. So I get a bigger house when I have more things. And when my garage is full, then I go and rent a storage unit to hold my stuff that doesn't fit in my stuff holding space in my house, right? We begin to hold and hoard onto things. And I'm not saying that that you shouldn't keep extra things. I'm just saying that greed slowly moves into our life where it becomes the force in which we are constantly battling. We are constantly saying, I just need a little more. I just need a little more. Most of us don't want to win $350 million, although we wouldn't turn it down. But we're not longing for that. Most of us are just making deals with the Lord going, God, if I just had extra $1,000 this month, right? Because greed, we think, is excess. Like, I want so much more than I deserve. The Bible actually paints a different picture. It actually says when we become, to love, become lovers of money and stuff, greed infiltrates our heart. And most of us bargain with the Lord and say, God, if I just had a little, kind of then everything would be okay. Look, the more money you have, the more things you engage in, the more expensive your lifestyle becomes, and the more money you need to have to sustain that. It is a never-ending cycle. That's true. Most very wealthy people I know, very wealthy people I know, live in a constant state of fear of being able to maintain that lifestyle. Right? It's hard. And I'm not saying we should feel sorry for, you know, super billionaires. I'm just saying, look, it's a vicious cycle, and you don't know you're in it till you're in it. And you can be in it making five grand a year because it begins with this sort of, I need more things. Look, I I use the term resist greed because I want you to take an active fight against it. 
I want you to put a stake in your life and say, okay, God, I don't need more. I may want more, but I don't need it. And I want to fight that part of me that says I have to have it. I want to fight that part of me that wants to measure up with this person or with that person. I want to resist it. Now, I'm not saying don't go out and, and get stuff and buy things. I'm not really saying that. What I'm saying is you've got to resist that part of you that's, not, that's starting to love things more than you love the God that gives them. right? Of course, not you. I'm talking to somebody else, but loves those things. Right? So earn ethically. Resist greed. The third one is this. Spend modestly. Now, really, the idea of spending modestly is really one about contentment. And I'm going to get into that next week. I'm actually going to be talking all next week about cultivating a life of contentment. How do I rest and say, Jesus, you are enough for me? Like, that's what we're going to talk about next week. But I want you to think about this uh, for a moment. Because spending modestly is really kind of in depth about, am I okay with just the Lord? Because here's the truth, and I'll put this out there. I think that most of us spend to fill voids. Now, I'm not talking about normal spending, power, lights, food, rent. I'm talking about the other things we spend money on. Most of us engage in spending to fill voids in our life, right? How I feel about myself, my self-esteem, what the world thinks about me, what my parents did or didn't do for me growing up, how they treated money, how they treated me, how they made me feel oppressed. So I don't want to ever treat my kids that way, so I spend or I buy or I do to fill that void of how my mom did this to me or how my neighbor does this or how he's always showing up with that one great thing. And so I want to engage in that one great thing. Or everybody in my kind of you know, real estate firm, they drive these kind of cars. Everybody in my business does this. And so we spend to fill voids because we're basically saying, God, you aren't quite enough. And so I want to perpetuate this image whether it's visible or whether it's just in me. I don't think you will know how many females I have talked to, right, in my own life that spend money to fill voids of self-esteem. Guys do the exact same thing, but in different ways. I deeply believe that the way that we spend money is because we don't have our hearts filled with contentment that says, God, I believe that you're enough for who I am and for my life. Listen to Hebrews chapter 13, uh, verse 5. Our author in Hebrews is, we don't really know who it is. It's just this person. And so he's writing to this group of gathered Hebrew believers, Jewish believers. And it says this, verse 5, 13. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, nor will I forsake you. Here's what he's saying. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be be grateful and content with what you have. Why? Because God says, I'll never leave you. Here's what the author's saying. He's saying, God says, be content with your life because he says he's enough for you. When we spend just to fill those spiritual or emotional or physical voids in our life, basically what we're saying is, God, you are not enough for me. So I'm going to fill my life with something to try and replace that. Now, I'm not saying don't buy TVs and don't buy cars or whatever that is. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just asking you to question what you spend and why you spend it. I'm asking you just to stop and say, why? Am I actually engaging in spending because I'm filling some spiritual or physical or emotional void in my life because I'm mad at my mom or my husband or my, my wife or my coworkers or whatever? It will revolutionize your financial life if you begin to stop and say, why? Why? We earn ethically. God, I'm going to be honest, and I'm going to work as though I'm called right here, even if it's not an ideal situation, right? I'm going to resist greed. Hey, look, I'm not going to be a lover of money. I want to be a lover of God. So it's not about 
lot more. Greed begins with just wanting a little more. Look, it's okay to long for things. It's okay to long for stuff. But when that begins to run our heartbeats, so we're resisting greed. We're spending modestly. I use the word modest because I don't want to tell you not to spend. And I don't want you to be like, man, I go to this church and pastor wants to let me buy a sweater and I'm freezing. No, I mean, it's not that at all. It's just going, look, just ask yourself, why? Why am I buying this thing, this gadget, this clothing article, this car? That, why? It's because I, I'm trying to fill something that I don't believe God can fill in me. I, if we're really, really, really honest, almost all of our excess spending is driven by something like that, trying to fill some kind of void, whether it's I didn't have anything growing up or my mom just always told us how poor we are and I never had anything, and so I don't want my kids to ever feel that way, and so I'm going to fill that void by overcorrecting. Fourth, so earn ethically, resist greed, spend modestly, um, and the fourth one is avoid debt. Now, here's the deal. We're going to be in Romans chapter 13 for those of you that are kind of flipping around. I'm not the guy that's going to stand up here and tell you that debt is wrong or debt is sin. I've heard that sermon a zillion times. Like, you're in debt, you're living in sin. Here's the deal. The Bible actually doesn't say that. The Bible does not tell us that debt, all debt is wrong and that debt is sin. So when you hear that, you just got to kind of go, well, not necessarily. But here's the deal. The Bible does tell us that debt is not a good idea. All right? And here's why. Look at Romans chapter 13, verse 7 and 8. Well, these are, these are the principles I want you to see first. So Romans chapter 13, verse 7 and 8. Let me find it here. Um, he says this, Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. Two principles when it comes to debt, and then I'll tell you why debt is not a good idea from the Bible. First is, if you owe money, pay it back. And the second one is pay it back quickly. Like, those are the biblical principles of debt. If you owe money, be a person that pays it back and pay it back as soon as you can. That's sort of the Bible's guiding principles about debt. The Bible looked at debt in a really different way than we look at debt. The Bible would do things like have a year of Jubilee where all debt was forgiven because, you know, really kind of a cool way that community lived. But we don't live in that culture, and that's okay. The reality is the Bible still tells us that if we engage in debt, whether it's I owe a lawnmower to my neighbor, or whether it's I've got a bunch of debt from a bank or a credit card or whatever, my goal should be to pay it back and pay it back quickly. Now, why is that? Why is that something the Bible actually talks about? Well, Proverbs 22 tells us it's because when we owe money to a lender, right, we become slaves to that lender. And it's not talking about the reality of like we physically become slaves. It's a metaphorical thing. When we owe money to someone else, we are actually at their mercy. We belong to them. We are less free to move and act and respond to the things that the Lord has called us to if we are living in constant debt. If, take this. If, if you have a mountain of debt or any kind of debt, whether it's house or whether it's credit cards and cars and all those things, and God calls you to go and do something, to drop what you're doing, and he calls you to the mission field. Let's just use a kind of a radical example, right? God calls you to move to the mission field, and you are saddled with $15,000 in credit card debt. You got a couple of notes on the cars that are a little bit upside down or whatever. And, and while you had your job, you were paying those things, you know, the best you could. You weren't just, you know, you're paying your monthly payments and all that. But now God is calling you. You can't actually respond and go because you've got to now deal with this reality. Before God, I say yes to your call to take me to wherever. I have to deal with the fact that I've got to find $15,000 to pay this credit card company because when I go to try and raise support, 
as a missionary or go and live in another culture and live on $2,000 a, you know, a, a week or, or I mean a month or a, every other month or whatever. I'm not free. Why? Because I'm a slave to this thing. Now, here's the deal. We all have wrestled with debt, myself deeply included. Like, debt is a part of our existence in this culture. But here's the Bible's principle. Avoid it. Like, it's not saying don't engage it. But if you can't avoid it, and if you're in it, pay it back and pay it back quickly. Why? Because we're more free. We're more free to give to the Lord, to give to people, give of our resources. Our neighbor gets in trouble. They're struggling. We are more free to be able to step into their lives and say, let me help you out this month. Let me pick up your rent while you struggle. If I don't have to make a $400 payment to a credit card company or to a second mortgage or to whatever. Do you see the principle there? So I'm not telling you debt is something you shouldn't engage in, but I'm telling you that now is the time, if you have it, to work a plan to pay it back and pay it back quickly. Because then you become free to say, God, use my resources however you want to because they don't have to go to somebody else. Right? Avoid debt. It will revolutionize the way that you think and the way that you live. And it will give you crazy freedom in your financial life. Earn ethically, right? Resist greed, spend modestly, avoid debt. Final one, we'll wrap everything up with this. Give generously. Two weeks, I'm going to really explain this. But here's the thing. Here's the principle here. There is nothing more freeing to your financial and your life in general than being someone who gives generously. Now, for most of us, that doesn't make a lot of sense because here's the thing is that we live in a culture that teaches giving out of our excess, right? We learn it from kindergarten all the way up. It's reinforced in everything that we do. I will take what I have first, right? And then if I have anything left over, I will give it to you. If I have two crackers and I eat one and I'm full and I'm in kindergarten, I will give you my extra cracker. I give out of my abundance because I no longer need that. I don't want that cracker. I have filled myself. Our food drives are a great example of this. Hey, we're going to go out and we're going to give food drives at our school. And so we bring cans of all the things in our pantry we don't really want. I guarantee you can ask John Bob. He works for the food bank. They can probably get a billion cans of pumpkin and tomato paste because nobody knows what to do with those. I still don't know what to do with tomato paste. I don't even know how you make it. But here's what happens. We were working at the City Rescue Mission one day, and they were doing all these lunches, and, and they had this closet full of, like, rando cans. I mean, just crazy. And I said, what in the world is all this? He goes, these are all the cans people just give us because they don't know what else to do with it. It was like one can of white olives. Who even knew those existed, right? Like sardine this and that. And, you know, you're just going, look, we give because we're giving out of our abundance. That's what we're trained to do. Hey, I've got too many sweaters for me to actually wear. So instead of feeling bad for putting one in the trash, I'm going to call and I'm going to give somebody my sweater. And then I'm going to feel really good about myself because I gave a sweater to an organization that's probably probably going to give it away. Most of the stuff you donate to Goodwill, and that's just the truth, ends up in the garbage. That's just the reality. Because we give our trash. We give our abundance. Very seldom do we give our best. We give our garbage. We give that old wood table that we had that's only got three legs, right? But somebody will love it. Why don't you love it? If everybody's going to love it, you should love it. No, it's got three legs. They don't even stand up. (laughs) Right? But we give out of our abundance. Here's the biblical principle. We are not called to give out of our abundance, right, but to give with sacrifice, to give with sacrifice. And it talks about our resources and our finances. We are called to give in a way that is sacrificial. Look at Mark chapter 4, and I'll end with this, if I can find it. Mark chapter 4, 41 through 44. Listen to this. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were being put. 
So he's sitting out there by the temple, and he's sitting down on the steps, and he's watching. He's watching people put their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came up, and she put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples over, he said, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has put in more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty. She put in everything she had and everything she had to live on. The principle that the Bible plays out all the time is never about amount. It's never about dollars. It's never about how much. It's always about sacrifice. It's always about saying, God, you get the first and you get the best, which is what we're going to talk about in two weeks. The principle of sacrificial giving is revolutionary. I mean, it it, it will change your life. Because most of us, what we do is we look at our financial life and we budget or we look at those things and then we decide at the very end, whatever we have left over, we'll think about giving away. I've got 200 extra dollars and I should give 100 of that maybe to the church and then I've got a friend who and her daughter's going to go on this campus crusade trip, so I'll support that missionary and we'll do this and that, that excess money I have. The Bible talks about giving in a different way. The Bible actually talks about giving God first and best. So God, you get the first in my life, the first in my resource, and then everything else can come in one second. Nothing is more freeing than beginning to give out a sacrifice. Initially, it's the most complicated step you'll ever take. It's the most faith kind of wrenching sort of, I'm going to write this check first. And I'm not saying to the church, I don't really even care. I'm just talking about what God is calling you to give to. Okay, I'm going to write this check first for you. And then everything else I'll figure out. Nothing is more freeing than that. It's, It's a revolutionizing idea. So this little widow takes two small coins that are worth a fraction of a penny. And Jesus says... She gave more than everybody else. And, and rich people were coming further, giving out of their abundance. Like, look, here's all this. And look, we need people to give out of their abundance. I'm not going to lie because the lights stay on. But that's not what God desires. And so we don't want to desire that. We want to push back from that and say, look, I want you to give sacrificially. It doesn't have to be here. I want you to look at the Lord and say, God, you get my first and my best. Because here's the model. This is what God did for you. Think about it. You were broken and sinful. I was broken and sinful. In all of my messed up life, I was a disaster. And while I was still sinful, Romans chapter 5 says this, while I was still sinful, God sent his son, his perfect and holy son, to give me life, to die for me. You want to talk about sacrificial giving. That's not giving out of God's abundance. That's God giving the ultimate sacrifice. He modeled sacrificial giving by saying, I am not withholding the life of my own son, but if you believe in Jesus, I will lay him out for you to give you life. And this morning as we celebrate this table, as we take communion, that is what we're celebrating. This is the picture of sacrificial giving. I mean, think about what God gave up. And we're writing a check wondering if if I can really do this. And God said, look, I'm not holding anything from you. I love you so much and I want your life so redeemed that I will give my son that all who believe in him won't perish but have eternal life. And I wrestle with whether or not I can give God 20 bucks or two cans of tomatoes. I mean, here's the thing. Sacrificial giving is who we're called to be, what we're called to be and who we're called to be as a people. Five things. Earn ethically, right? Resist greed, spend modestly, avoid debt, and give generously. And if it's not money for you, if that's not your issue, think about your time. Who gets the best of your time? Does your wife? Does your husband? Do your kids? Do your friends? Giving generously means I give what's painful and what's hard. Sometimes the hardest thing in the world to give is our life. 
my heart, opening that thing up and saying, you can actually be in here. God modeled this picture of sacrificial giving. This is what we celebrate this morning. I mean, it's the ultimate picture of sacrifice. Because on that night that Jesus was betrayed, on that very night that uh, he would be basically abandoned by all of his closest friends, they would run from him. He sat with them at a table and he, he scrubbed the dirt off their feet. The very God that made them, the very God that created humanity, scrubbed the dirt off their feet, served them. And as they were there eating dinner that evening, he sat with his disciples. And he took this loaf of bread and he said, this body is my body. After giving thanks, he said, it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after he'd taken the bread, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. It's the new covenant. That when you eat of this bread and you drink of this cup, what you're doing is proclaiming my death until I come again. That night, Jesus would be betrayed, he would be beaten, and ultimately the next day crucified as the ultimate picture of sacrifice that God calls us to reflect and to model. Let's pray.